Again, we're continuing our series through Paul's letters to the Ephesians this morning, the Christians in and around this large ancient city of Ephesus. Uh, And in case you weren't with us, uh, we looked for a couple of weeks at chapter four. And one of the things we saw is is that Paul repeatedly points us toward the person of Jesus as the measure of a mature and good life. A mature and good life, you want, if you desire that, you look to the person of Jesus. So he says in one place that Jesus is the mature man. And then in another, that we should be moving towards this new man and taking off an old. Jesus is the new man that we put on as we take off our old man, our old selves. Look, I, I think in a way this is hard for anyone to argue with. Even though we might not want everything that went with the life of Jesus, and I think we could all say that we don't necessarily want everything that went with Jesus' life, with all the examples of a good life that we might have in our world today, we do not find a life as compelling as the life of Jesus. Nor do we find a way of life that people claim to be as wholly satisfying as walking in the way of Jesus. So a couple of weeks ago, wow, that was odd. A couple of weeks ago, drawing on this section in Paul's letter from chapter four, I said that the main task in all of our lives for all of us is to become more and more like Jesus. We spend our entire lives trying to do this, even though uh, our lives play out in a very different culture with very different challenges than the ancient Near East. Uh, We are called to immerse ourselves in the life of Jesus in such a way that we inhabit our world in the way that Jesus would have. So uh, one author, I think this is really helpful. Uh, uh, What we're talking about here is very similar to what actors and actresses do when they try to learn the skill of improvisation. This might sound odd at first, but give me a minute to explain it. This is the one of the most difficult skills for actors and actresses to learn. The reason is that they have to so thoroughly inhabit a character and a story that they know intuitively what that actor or that real historical person would do in a different situation. And if they don't inhabit that story well enough, then their portrayal isn't true to the story. It doesn't come off well, it, you can, it, it doesn't look real. So here, here's one example. This isn't exactly improvisation, but it's related. There's an author that by the name of P.D. James. She writes British mystery novels, but she really likes the author uh, Jane Austen. And so one of Jane Austen's most famous books, Pride and Prejudice, P.D. James decides to turn it into a murder mystery. Well, if you don't inhabit the world of Jane Austen and Pride and Prejudice well enough, then you can't pull off a murder mystery about prejudice. And I'll let you be the judge of whether she pulls it off or not. But another version of this, which this is just a classic in the history of movies already, is Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, if you've heard of this one. So the goal of this story is to get into the historical circumstances and the life of Abraham Lincoln to the point that they can 
say what it would look like were he really a vampire hunter, right? Incredible movie, right? Seriously, though, this is a helpful way to think about our lives as Christians and what we're doing in trying to follow Jesus in our own day. We immerse ourselves in the life of Jesus so thoroughly in prayer, in scripture, and in community so that we learn how to live the way of Jesus right now in all the complicated stuff that we encounter in our lives at home, in marriage, and in family, um, in high school at Spotswood or at East Rock, uh, maybe in political conversations with friends. What does it look like? to live out the way of Jesus right now. And this is, this is challenging stuff. And that's why we have our entire lives to do it. This is why it's the main task of our entire lives. This is why we have the gift of God's spirit to help us. And this is why we have a community of faith that's rooted in forgiveness. Because this is hard stuff to figure out. So in the passage we're looking at today, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 20 that Darcy just read to us, I think we're getting another angle on this same idea. So before Paul said that we must become like Jesus, right? Here we're told, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. It's different, but in a way it's the same. Because we worship the God who is one and who is three. The God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, united in love. So one more of the ways that we become like Jesus, one more of the ways that we become mature people in our own day and age, in the world we live in, is we become children like Jesus. So Jesus is our big brother. Paul talks like this in other places. He made us brothers and sisters in him, and he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters if we follow after him. We watch him. We learn from him. And we need to ask this question. What type of child was Jesus? This is verse 2 of chapter 5. He loved us, his brothers and sisters, to the point that he gave himself up for us even when we weren't asking to be a part of the family. And as much as Jesus did this for us, he did it more for the father who sent him because he loved us. So Christians are a part of this incredible family of love. We're children of a father who pours out his love for us. And we're brothers and sisters of an older brother who's loved us to the point of dying to rescue us from ourselves. Honestly, Can you imagine a world without Jesus? Without this kind of God, a world without a man who died for others in the ways that he did. A world without one who lived so faithfully before God, who said, love your enemy and then did it in the ways that he did it. Even if you're not a Christian, A world without Jesus isn't nearly as hopeful of a world. And for Christians, we really don't want to imagine that world. We don't want to imagine ourselves in that world. Because of Jesus, our lives are now rooted and grounded in love. 
But here's the part of the passage where people start to squirm. Because from verse 3 on, a lot of this passage goes on to talk about things we shouldn't do. It starts and goes on for a good while about inappropriate sex. So sexual immorality and crude talk that, uh, that kind of is centered around sex. A kind of idolatrous way of looking at sex. And this is odd because love in our world is supposed to be the most freeing thing, right? And yet then we get to these things about all we shouldn't do. The problem is that even though love is the most freeing thing, one of the most freeing things in the world, love is also one of the most quickly corrupted things in the world. All these negatives are a way of building kind of a shelter around love and protecting it from the things that would distort it. So we're still talking, and we'll talk throughout this sermon on Ephesians 5, uh, about growing into mature people, becoming people like Jesus. But here's one of the ways that we have to do that. We have to steer clear of all the ways that love can be corrupted in our lives. So it's no accident at all that immediately after pointing us to the way of love, the way of Jesus, Paul warns us against this corruption of love by fornication. A better description of it is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality in the Bible is a catch-all for all forms of sex that are outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Now, that's a quick way of saying that. If you have questions about it, we can talk about it after But early Christians, Christians throughout history, have received this testimony of Scripture as meaning that sex was made as a gift from God for a man and a woman within marriage. Sexual immorality is a catch-all for all things outside of that. Sexual immorality is love reduced to sex. Love without true relationship. Love without real love. And the reason Paul's so adamant throughout this section and in almost all of his other letters is because the corruption of God's best gifts is the absolute worst. Even after forgiveness, it causes the most painful and the most lasting consequences. So with sexual sin especially, it's so dangerous, it's so inappropriate to the context of a Christian community that it shouldn't even be joked about. Now, hear me, please. Paul is not a prude. And the Bible is far from prudish. This is the same guy who basically says in Corinthians that people should get married because not everybody can control themselves. And later on in that same book, he says that even though a husband and wife might decide to go for some time without sex so that they can give themselves to prayer and fasting, they shouldn't do it for very long. Paul is not a prude. God isn't just concerned with what we don't do in sex. If you read the whole testimony of scripture about this, if you read Song of Solomon, God is not only concerned with what we don't do in sex. He's also concerned with what we do. That it is a gift. 
And if you're married, you should be working towards a healthy sex life. This should not be a taboo subject within the church. So let's get it straight. Paul is not at all a prude. And I think there's enormous spiritual good that comes from a husband and wife who are able to talk about sex in, in a playful way. It opens up the conversation to where we can actually get it on the table and talk about what it looks like to do this in a way that honors God and loves him and loves each other. A group of men or women who are capable of talking and even joking about it together in a way that respects the spouse, the other spouse. That's a gift. Because when you do have those troubles in marriage and you need to talk about it, that's the group that you need to be able to go to. But there is a kind of joking that twists, that distorts God's good gifts. So when you treat holy gifts like sex with disdain and with disrespect, you diminish yourself in the process. Now, it is good for us to know that especially in this sexually charged world that that we live in now, that Christians for nearly 2,000 years have felt it necessary to walk a different line than their culture when it comes to sex. For 2,000 years, we are not alone here. So if you find it difficult to believe a traditional Christian view about sexuality, or you find it difficult to live that Christian view, you need to remember that you have a cloud of witnesses who have wrestled with this and have sought to be faithful to Jesus. The ancient world was as loose about sex as our own world and probably more so. This is why Paul brings it up in nearly every letter that he writes. Pornography, for instance, it's usually hidden in our world, right? It it becomes prominent when we drive and more prominent on billboards when we, we drive into major cities. But for the most part, it's hidden. It's obvious that in the ancient world, pornography was public. So the ancient city of Pompeii. Uh, was struck by a volcano in 79 AD. This is in the early years of Christianity. And because of the volcano, the city was essentially frozen in time. We can go back now and we can see exactly what the city was like when the volcano hit the city. There are sexual images all throughout the city. Throughout the city, they are graphic, they are grotesque. Sexuality in the ancient world was ubiquitous. But from the start, Christianity, Christians, received the whole Bible as one single teaching on sex. From Adam and Eve to Jesus to Paul's letters, they believed that their bodies belonged to God, that their bodies were to be treated with a a sacredness, and that sex was reserved for marriage between a man and a woman. And as as impossible as this might sound in our world and in conversations when we leave this place, Christians not only lived this, they became known for it. People were attracted to Christianity because of it. So there was a famous physician in the ancient world, and he was said to know three things about Christians. Three things. Their courage in the face of death. Their self-restraint in matters of sex, food, and drink, 
and their keen pursuit of justice. Also an early Christian, he described the faith to an inquirer by saying, they share their food, but not their beds. In so many cases, the Christian approach to sex is made to seem onerous, as if God wants us to suffer. And then when we do slip up, he's waiting to punish us. This is the common understanding of God's wrath, which Paul talks about in our passage, doesn't he? Verse 6, God's wrath comes because people are deceived by empty words and they live lives of rebellion. We need to make sure what we, under, what, we understand what Paul means by this. God's wrath is not arbitrary. It's not that God is watching and waiting for the next opportunity to catch one of us for breaking the rules. He's not. God's wrath is built into the creation itself. There are certain ways of living, of behaving that are so out of line with the ways that God has made this world that we live in and the ways that he made us as human beings. That by acting in those ways, they bring their own peril. This is the way it is with sex. We were not made for recreational sex. God has made us as human beings for relationships and particular kinds of relationships that are rich when we walk in them in the ways that God made us. So I ask you to think about this. When we're serious, when we're alone for a little while after the thrill of a sexual liaison or the laughter after perverted jokes that have just gone a little bit too far, Eventually, sexual immorality just becomes sad. It becomes sad. You realize that you've given part of yourself away that you can't get back. And as Paul says, when we do it, it's a form of idolatry. Because in the midst of those acts, you think primarily of yourself and the experience that you'll gain from it. And to live that way brings a form of death. A death on the inside. A sadness. So we're being warned. We're being commanded even. Stay away from it. Don't get near it. Don't let these perverted forms of love be a part of your life as the people of Jesus. That's darkness. But we're children of light. And as we live in the light, God's instructions become less burdensome, more about genuine love and love as real freedom. You know, as a community, as parents, as grandparents, even, we have a lot of work to do to figure out how we help children and grandchildren with the lies they encounter about sex. The first thing we need to do is make sure that we're reading the Bible well about sex and we're understanding what God desires. I think we need to learn to talk openly and shamelessly about the goodness of sex within marriage. Children growing up in our homes should know that sex is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. It is a gift of God. 
but we also need to find ways of talking about the pains that come when sex is made into an idol. Pornography, the ways that pornography distorts sex and object, causes us to objectify people. Premarital sex, look, God is always ready to forgive and we need to raise our children in grace that God is always ready to receive them even after they sin. But we do need to teach our children that all actions have consequences. So even though there is grace, often the memories don't quite fade away. There's still a tinge of sadness even after the forgiveness. And we must teach our children too, through biblical and personal examples about what happens when trust is sacrificed in a marriage. When we choose to cheat or lie, we have to teach our children that this is painful and this is hard to fix. This is how we love our children. We need to show them that God is ready to show mercy, but we challenge them to remain holy and we teach them that even with forgiveness, our decisions will have consequences. So again, we're talking about becoming mature people like Jesus himself. And to do this, we have to steer clear of all the ways that love can be corrupted. And in the process, we become less. As we close, I want to show you the positive side to this. There are lots of don'ts in this passage, but that's not all there is. There's something we need to do to grow in maturity and likeness to Jesus. We need to develop gratitude. We need to develop gratitude. So twice in this passage, Paul tells us, instead of living lives of these corrupted loves, we should be people of thanksgiving, of gratitude. Uh, Listen to verses 18 through 20. This is just one of the places he mentions it. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything. God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. For me, I don't know about for you, gratitude has become pretty thin and cliche. We have a holiday for it, right? Uh, We received the magazine last week for the fixer-upper people out of Waco, Texas, um, Chip and Joanna Gaines, and their theme for their magazine for this season is gratitude. And and that's wonderful, but I I find that some of the gratitude we talk about doesn't have a lot of roots to it. It's about making us just happier. But the Christian version of gratitude shook the foundations of the ancient world, much like their views on sex. So gratitude in the ancient world was a circle, okay? Someone would give you a gift, and you gave them a gift back, And it had to have equal value. Look, in the ancient world, you never gave someone a gift who couldn't give you a gift in return. It was reciprocity. It was constantly going back and forth. I give you something, you give me something. It was a circle. 
But Christianity comes along and God reveals himself as the ultimate gift giver. He gives himself for the world, for humanity. And here's the crucial piece. God cannot be repaid. He cannot be. So the circle of reciprocating is broken. At this point, gift giving and gratitude have to look entirely different. Because now humanity is kicked out of the circle. God is the only one who can stand in the circle. Humans are on the outside and can only look in. The only way for humans to respond is to live lives of thanksgiving and devotion and service to God. To give ourselves to others, to those who cannot repay us in the ways that God has given himself to us when we can't repay him. Even if we give to others and others give to us, think about this. God is always the source of every gift because he's the beginning and end of everything. So any way you look at it, we cannot get even. We can't even get even with each other. Look, our giving to each other does not matter just on this level anymore. Because anything you give me is really coming from God himself. So I give thanks to you as an extension of God. And this is how we deal with each other. We don't hold debts over each other's head. This is one of the qualities of Christians in the ancient world. They were in debt to no one. But constantly giving thanks. In a way, we're always in debt only to God. But incredibly, God doesn't hold debts over our head. He simply calls us to be people of gratitude and to live these lives of self-giving love, to walk in love, as he says, as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. This is the kind of life, a life of gratitude that keeps us from corrupted loves, loves that do distort us. The loves that masquerade as if they are more satisfying than God himself. But in the end, those loves, they only take from us. They don't give in the way that God gives. Sexual immorality may hold some promise of satisfaction, but in the end, it will only take. But God gives. So in closing, let me ask you, are you grateful Are you full of gratitude? There may be a lot going on in your life. But somewhere within you, you must find the capacity through Jesus Christ to have gratitude for all of God's gifts. As Paul says, giving thanks always. Another question. Are you giving yourself to loves that will not satisfy you? If you are... Are you willing to talk to me or someone and repent? To open yourself up again to the love of God. To return to the one who will give you everything. Somehow we have to learn, just like our Lord Jesus Christ, that in any moment of our lives, even the saddest, the most disappointing, we can give ourselves to our Father. Because he always gives us more than we can give him. 
So let's close in prayer. God, you are our father. And we give you thanks that you delight in giving good gifts to your children. You love to give us good gifts. And one of the gifts you've given us is you've shown us the way to life and love and true humanness. You've shown us the way to find satisfaction in our lives. God, we give you thanks. Help us to remain true to you. Give us courage and faith, even when there's so many aspects of the world that are so tempting that we sometimes want to try them out and see if they might satisfy us. Help us to trust you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.